Now, we come to chapter 8 in Daniel, and here is Daniel's vision of the ram and he-goat and another little horn. And this is a very important chapter, and yet it's already been fulfilled. All of this, when it was given, it was prophetic, and it was fulfilled. And by the way, this is the chapter that a great many of the radical critics they use this chapter as the basis for giving a late date of Daniel. And you know the argument rests on this. Well, we know that to prophesy concerning the future is supernatural. We do not believe in the supernatural. Therefore, this could not be given as prophecy. It was written afterward as history. And you know that probably is about the weakest argument that there is. It's not our purpose in this study to go in introductory matters, but I want to say to you, you can't maintain the late date of Daniel. Daniel was written by Daniel. I always think of what Mark Twain said about Shakespeare. You know, there's a debate, by the way, whether Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare or not. Some thought Bacon wrote it. And a professor of mine, he wrote a paper once, bringing home the bacon. And he believed that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare. Well, Mark Twain answered that. He said Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare. It was written by another man by the same name. Well, you can say about the book of Daniel, then, to answer the critics, Daniel of 600 and something B.C. did not write Daniel, but it was written by another man by the same name, at the same date. Now, that brings us here to chapter 8. And you have in the first 14 verses the vision of the ram and the he-goat. And then the action is given to us beginning with verse 8, actually through 14. And then beginning with verse 15, we have the meaning of the vision. goes through verse 27. Now, let's just look at this prophecy here for just a moment that is before us. Now, this prophecy of the ram with two unmatched horns and the he-goat with one horn, it places a microscope down on the conflict that existed between the second and third world empires in the struggle of east and west. That was important of the Orient and the Occident, Asia and Europe. It was the empire of the Media Persian, and then the empire of the Greco-Macedonian. Now, we are going to see a little horn here again. He's already been fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes, and we're going to see that when we get to it. And we find all of this is already fulfilled today. Now, there's something else we ought to say about this section, and that is that beginning at verse 4 of chapter 2 through this last chapter, chapter 7, it was written in Aramaic. That was the original language, or Syriac. And now we return back to Hebrew here. But you and I'll stick with the English translation, of course. So that that makes it intensely interesting. What we have seen was given in the world language of these four great empires. Now, we're going to have some specifics given to us in this section here. 
And so we'll see the division of the goat empire of Alexander into four kingdoms. And that seriously involved Israel. And then we'll see the downfall of the media persian Empire and how it fell. This is something that is very important because it concerned the nation Israel. Now, let's get right into it. We have what is called the vision of the ram and he-goat. Verse 1. We have now the time and place of this vision. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. Now, this is the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. And it places this vision as the other toward the end of the Babylonian Empire, for Belshazzar was the last king. Now, chapter 7 that we just looked at, that was given in the first year of his reign. Now, verse 2, And I saw in a vision, and it came to pass, when I saw that I was at Shushan the palace, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in a vision, and I was by the river of Uli. In the vision, Daniel finds himself at Shushan, which is Susa, the capital of Media Persia, which actually was the second world empire. And he was in the palace. More accurately, he was near the fortress. And Uli is the Kirkhar River, which flowed by Susa. Now, the reason for the setting of the vision, being at Susa rather than Babylon, is that this vision concerns the second and third world empires. The events foretold in this vision were all fulfilled within 200 years. Now, such fulfillment is so remarkable that the liberal critic, as we've indicated before, he insists upon a late dating of Daniel. That is, he maintains that Daniel was written after these events had transpired, and so is merely a historical record. In an attempt to get rid of the miraculous, which is, of course, embarrassing to the liberal system of interpretation, now, will you notice here in verses 3 and 4, we have the vision now. Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, I stood before the river a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. Now, let me pause there at the end of verse 3 to identify the ram here. The ram had two horns. Now, that's media Persia. It says that the horn that came up last was higher than the other. In other words, the Median came up first. It was Gabras, the Median general, that destroyed Babylon. And then later, the Persian monarchs, they gained the ascendancy over the Median, and they took the kingdom this great empire, to its heights. So that the ram now here with two horns, one horn that's more prominent than the other, it's the media Persian empire with the Persian being in the ascendancy. Now, verse 4, I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward. 
so that no beast might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. Now, do you notice the directions in which he moved? I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward. Now, why doesn't it say that he's pushing eastward? Well, that's where he was in the east. The Persian Empire was right on the door of civilization of that day. You'd open the door, you'd step into the Orient, of course, India and China. And at that time, this was where the action was. And so he's moving in every direction. He is projecting this empire out in all different directions. Now, we find here that this is the Persian Empire, and that's the bear in the seventh chapter. Now, it's a ram that's put before us because it serves the purpose. Now, he pushes north and west and south, and the Persians were all motivated by the spirit of conquest. I think that was true of all of them. Now, will you notice this? We have now the other side of the vision, the rough goat with one dominant horn, and he destroys the ram. Verse 5, And as I was considering, behold, a he-goat came from the west, that is, out of Europe now, on the face of the whole earth, and touched not the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Now, this is a one-horned goat, a unicorn. Now, Daniel was marveling at the power and the ability of the ram. But yonder in the west, there came a goat, and with great movement, and he had a dominant horn. Now, that goat represents Greece. And if you doubt that, you just turn over with me to verse 21. We read this, And the rough goat is the king of Grecia, and the Great horn that's between his eyes is the first king, and that was Alexander the Great. Now, we are able to identify this pretty easy here. What happens is Persia attempted to move into the west, and under Xerxes, that effort was made. But out of the west, there comes this goat, and he's moving so fast, he doesn't even touch the ground. That speaks of the four wings, you remember, that was on the panther, the leopard. And it speaks of Alexander the Great. Now, let's keep moving. Verse 6 and 7. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler against him. And, of course, that means he was moved with anger and great hatred against him. And, actually, he ran into him in order to destroy him. And I saw him come close unto the ram, moved with choler, with hatred, with anger against him. And he smote the ram, broke his two horns, and there was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Now, Xerxes was really the last great ruler of the Media persian Empire, 
And he made a foray against Europe, against Greece. And he was moving, my gracious, 300,000 men with their families. And the Greek soldiers were smart. They didn't go out to meet him. They waited until he got to Thermopylae. Well, that was a narrow pass. And you couldn't put a big army in there. But one Greek soldier was equal to at least 10 of the media Persian, because actually they were not a trained, disciplined army, as the Greeks had. So the Greeks were able to get the victory at Thermopylae. They just had to change ships there and take care of that tremendous army as they attempted to advance a few at a time through the pass. And then at Salamis, the fleet of Xerxes was destroyed by a storm, 300 vessels. Xerxes, as we've seen before in the book of Esther, he actually had a few bats in his belfry too. That's been characteristic of the rulers of the world. When the word was brought to him that his fleet had been destroyed by a storm, he went down and took off his belt and he beat the waves because they had destroyed his fleet. Now, that, I would say, is not the mark of an outstanding, intelligent man by any means. Well, anyway, that was the last effort that the East made to move toward the West. They never were able, after that, to make any great dent. Now, it's true that the great hordes of Muhammad, the Muslim forces, came up through Spain, the Moors, but Charles Martel stopped them at the Battle of Tours. And it's true that they attempted the Turks coming up through the East, through the Balkans, they made a stab at it, but it failed. But actually, this was the last great effort of a great world empire. And now there rises in the West this tremendous general, a young man. He was just 33 years of age when he died. He was a military genius, probably the greatest. And he was moving his army with great speed. He could move a power-striking force probably quicker than any other man, any other general's been able to do. Now, will you notice what happens here? And I'm reading verse 8. We are told, Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. Now, what was it that broke this horn? There was no power that could break it. We're told that when he came to power, the whole world was under the heel of Alexander the Great. And tradition says that he sat down and wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. He had conquered the then known world. Well, he had died one night because he was seized by a fever after a night-long drinking bout, and he died in Babylon in the year 323 B.C. And he was 33 years when he was strong. The great horn was broken. Now, we have had before us three great world empires, Babylon, the Media Persian, and the Greek Empire. All three went down in a drunken orgy, by the way. Drink was the determining factor. Now, I said I would be coming back to this. 
I asked some time ago for statistics on the use of alcohol in our nation, and I found out that the thing to do when I need somebody to do research, I'm going to ask you folk to do it. I've gotten some wonderful information. Now, let me say that our nation today, I do not think, will be destroyed by marijuana or heroin, but alcohol will destroy us. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not for legalizing marijuana, and I think the drug traffic is a grave danger. But while we're so busy on that front, we've forgotten that alcohol destroys nations, and it's destroyed nations in the past. Now, here are some statistics that are alarming. They ought to be. Almost half of the 55,000 deaths on the U.S. highways and streets were the result of alcohol drinking. In other words, 27,000 highway deaths related to alcohol consumption. That means that in two years, more people are killed by alcohol than in Vietnam. And we had a lot of protest movements. People carried banners. When did you see your last banner with somebody carrying a whiskey bottle on it and saying, this is the real danger to America today? But they don't do that, do they? Because there are too many people drinking liquor, and it's estimated that 9 million American workers, now these are people who hold jobs, are alcoholics. And I'm told that 450,000 of them are right here in Los Angeles County. It's the reason that practically every morning on the freeway, there are accidents and many deaths. So that today, this is alarming. $15 billion is spent annually for liquor. And we're seeing that this tremendous number, and that doesn't include a great many women and a great many people that are not working who are alcoholics. May I say to you, this great empire of Alexander the Great went down because he was an alcoholic. He conquered the world, but he couldn't conquer Alexander the Great. And the grave danger today in Washington is not the Democrats or the Republicans, yet I'm of the opinion that both of them present a problem today. But the big problem is the cocktail parties over which decisions of our government are made. That's alarming, friends. Why do we think that we're something special? There are a certain group of people that think the United States happens to be God's little pet. And there are others today that assume that we are so superior intellectually and evolution has produced us and we just happen to be at the top of the totem pole, and there's not a chance of us going down. My friend, it's time somebody's blowing the whistle and saying that we're on the way out. And if I read prophecy right, we're on the way out. Now, will you notice that when Alexander the Great went out, what happened? Well, his empire was divided among four men. Four generals, Cassander, who had married Alexander's sister, he took Europe, that is, Macedonia and Greece. Lysimachus, he took Asia Minor, which is the greater part of modern Turkey. And Seleucus, 
He took Asia and all the eastern part of Alexander's empire but Egypt. And then Ptolemy, he took Egypt and North Africa. Now, verse 9, And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the pleasant land. What's the pleasant land? Israel. Now, this was the Seleucidae monarchy or dynasty that took Syria. He attempted to take the land of Israel. And the one that's mentioned here, this little horn, he was Antiochus the fourth, or Epiphanes. He was son of Antiochus the Great. And sometimes he's called Epimenes, the madman. Here we go again with these demented rulers. And he came to the throne in 170 B.C., and he made his attack upon Jerusalem, and it was against him that the book of Maccabees, that the Maccabees were raised up. And anti-Semitism was at the core and heart of this man. And he placed an image of Jupiter in the holy place, And that was the first abomination of desolation because he took swine and boiled a pig and took the broth and put it on all the holy vessels. Now we're told in verse 10, it waxed great even to the host of heaven, cast down some of the host of the stars to the ground and stamped upon him. This statement is admittedly difficult of interpretation. I think the natural interpretation is that Antiochus challenged God, and he was permitted to capture Jerusalem and the temple. And for that reason, there was a warfare that was a spiritual warfare, where I think demonic and heavenly power was involved. There's a great deal we don't know yet, friends. Verse 11, Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Now, he was a devotee of Jupiter, and he chose for himself the title Theos Epiphanes, that is, God manifest. Now, verse 12, And a host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression. That is, it was by the permissive will of God that this little horn practiced and prospered during this period. Now we come down here to verse 13, where it says, Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake. And this is a holy one, which actually refers to one of God's created intelligences other than man, what we would call a supernatural creature. I often wonder what angels call us, by the way. Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spoke, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? Now, this is the little horn that came up, brought in an abomination of desolation. And it has to do with the temple and the putting up of an idol there. Verse 14, And he said unto me, Under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now, this refers to Antiochus Epiphanes, 
at the time of the Maccabees that were raised up and the awful period that Israel went through. It's in what we would call the intertestament period. That is between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The time here was limited to 2,300 days. Now, there's been always a great deal of disagreement as to the interpretation of these 2,300 days. As many of you already know, Seventh-day Adventism was largely based on this passage of Scripture. It grew out of the great Second Advent awakening uh, way back over a hundred years ago in which this verse was given the day-year interpretation and the date for Christ's coming was set for the year 1843. You see, 2,300 years from this date when this happened, why it was assumed it would be 1843. And at that time, William Miller and his followers, among whom was Miss Ellen G. White, they understood the sanctuary to be the earth which should be cleansed that is coming. Now, Miller was a very sincere but a badly mistaken Baptist preacher. And the day-year interpretation was a fragile and insecure foundation for any theory of prophecy. History has demonstrated of course, that it was a false assumption. If the 2,300 days are taken as being literal 24-hour days, the period would be between six and seven years, which approximates the time of Antiochus, Epiphanes. He was of the line of Seleucus that controlled Syria, and he was an inveterate hater of Israel. And in 170 B.C., he began to perpetuate and uh, perpetrate his atrocities. And the priest Judas Maccabeus called the hammer. He drove out the Syrian army in 165 B.C., at which time the temple was cleansed and rededicated after its pollution, because this man had polluted it. He put up a image of Jupiter and had taken uh, sow's broth and spread it over all the holy vessels. And the cleansing, of course, is celebrated in the Feast of Lights. You remember in John 10:22, we're told, and it was at Jerusalem, the Feast of the Dedication, or the Rededication, or Lights, and it was winter. That was the celebration. That is one of the holy days that they remember, and remembered in Christ's day, and still remember that actually is not mentioned in the Old Testament at all because it took place between the Old and New Testament period. Now, the meaning of the vision of the ram and goat is important for us. And it was Gabriel who was commissioned now to give Daniel a meaning. I'm reading now verses 15 and 16. And it came to pass when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning. Then, behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of Uli, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. And Daniel, you see, was puzzled by the vision, and he desired to learn the meaning of it. And there appeared to him now a heavenly angel, Gabriel, 
And by the way, this is the first time Gabriel's introduced to us in the Bible. Now, here is to be the interpretation, verse 17. The realm is Media Persia. We weren't guessing at that while ago. Will you listen? So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell upon my face. But he said unto me, Understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall be the vision. Now, you see, Gabriel, in the explanation that follows, makes it clear that Antiochus is but a picture in miniature of the coming Antichrist. And you'll notice it's for the time of the end, not the end of time. Nowhere in the Bible are we told about the end of time. Here it's the time of the end. And it locates the complete fulfillment in the Antichrist in that period that we have labeled, we didn't label it, the Lord Jesus did, the Great Tribulation period. And he is Antichrist, the man of sin, and the little horn of chapter 7. Now, this prophecy goes beyond the immediate future, and it's projected into the distant future. You see, it covered that immediate period, but it was an adumbration. It's a little picture of that which is future. And that's important to see, by the way, very important. Antiochus is merely a type of the other little horn who's going to come at the end of the times of the Gentiles. This is, I think, made abundantly clear by the use of these eschatological terms. Now, verse 18. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in deep sleep on my face toward the ground, but he touched me and set me upright. You notice the physical effect of this vision upon Daniel. Now, verse 19, And he said, Behold, I'll make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation, for at the time appointed the end shall be. You see, now Gabriel moves from the local fulfillment in Antiochus to the end of the times of the Gentiles. Now the ram which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kings of Median Persia. Now you see they're identified for us. There's no speculation here, guesswork. The ram is definitely identified for us, the kings of Media and Persia. Now we turn to the goat here, verse 21. And the rough goat is the king of Grecia, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. So the rough goat is likewise labeled the king of Greece, and the great horn, the first king, is Alexander the Great. Now, verse 22, Now, that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. In other words, none of these kingdoms would have power to take over all of them and Actually, no one kingdom would be as powerful as all of them under Alexander the Great. Now, I've dropped down to verse 23, and the little horn is identified for us here. He's Antiochus Epiphanes of the line of the Seleucidae that took Syria. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. Now, that's a direct reference to Antiochus Epiphanes. The only adequate explanation of this verse 
and of the facts of history is that this man was demon-possessed. In this also, he's a picture of the coming Antichrist, by the way. Now, we are told there shall arise false Christ, false prophets shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they'll deceive the very elect. That's why the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 24, 24. Now, I read verse 24 here in the 8th of Daniel. And his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully, and shall prosper, and practice, and destroy the mighty and the holy people. Now, the holy people here refer to Israel. And the slaughter of these people by Antiochus Epiphany seems almost unbelievable. He was as bad as Hitler ever was. And he's merely an adumbration of the one who's coming. Not Hitler, but Hitler is a picture of the one that's coming. And he's outlined for us in Revelation 13:7. It was given unto him to make war with the saints overcome them, and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. Now, verse 25, And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. Now, Antiochus was but a faint type of this king that's coming, and he shall do four things which Antiochus did in pygmy style. First, he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. When we're told when Antichrist comes that no man will buy or sell, save the one that had the mark of the beast. And then the other thing is he will control the economy with a vengeance. And then the next, he shall magnify himself in his heart. There's given unto him, we're told in Revelation 13:5, a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. In other words, humility is not a characteristic of the Antichrist. He's like Satan. Now, the third thing is, by peace he shall destroy many. He comes in as a lamb, but he goes out as a lion. You see, the rider on the white horse of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right after him comes the red horse of war. He brings in a false peace. And then the fourth and last, he shall also stand up against the prince of princes. You see, he is to oppose and fight against Christ. One of the marks of Antichrist and of that first beast in Revelation 13, he's against Christ. That's important to note. Now, verse 26, And the vision of the evening and the morning, which is told, is true. Wherefore, shut thou up the vision, it shall be for many days. Now, Daniel was told that the vision would be for the distant future, for many days to come. That is, what was happening there in history would be out yonder in the future, History would be a picture of the future. Verse 27, And I, Daniel, fainted. I was sick certain days. Afterward I rose up and did the king's business. And I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. 
You see, the physical and the psychological effect of this vision upon Daniel was devastating. God is beginning, you see, at this point, to mesh in the times of the Gentiles into the history of the nation Israel. That was the thing that puzzled Daniel at the first. Puzzles a great many people today. How can God mesh in his program with Israel and his program with the Gentiles in the world and today to further complicate his program with the church? Well, it's quite simple, of course. God's calling out a people today to his name. That's the church. And when that is concluded and the church is removed, then he again turns to his purpose in Israel and the Gentile nations. The day's calling out a people which is altogether different. Now we come to chapter 9, and chapter 9 is one of those remarkable chapters in the Scripture. It's Daniel's vision of the 70 weeks concerning the nation Israel in answer to his prayer. And we have here, first of all, the prayer of Daniel. Now, this chapter, I think, has been recognized by more expositors of the Word as one of the great chapters of the Bible. Dr. Philip Newell, for instance, evaluates this chapter as the greatest chapter in the book and one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible. Well, that gives it, you see, a place of real prominence. And the double theme here is prayer and prophecy. You have first the prayer of Daniel, verse 21 verses. Then you have the prophecy of the 70 weeks concerning Daniel's people, which, of course, is Israel. That's verses 22 to 27. Now, the prayer of Daniel in this chapter is actually a culmination of a life of prayer. We began with Daniel. He had a prayer meeting, and he's had a prayer meeting all the way through. Now, this prayer here contains in it some of the ingredients that are basic to all prayer. In fact, here you have a prescription of prayer. And I'm just going to give that to you today, and then we'll be ready for the chapter. That was, first of all, purposeful planning. Prayer wasn't haphazard with Daniel. He says, I set my face unto the Lord to seek by prayer and supplication. It's not just the repetition of idle words or the making of pretty paraphrastic phrases, something that contains a great deal of flowery grammar. That's not real prayer. The Lord Jesus said, when ye pray, use not vain repetition. And then this prayer reveals painful performance. He went through a period of fasting and sackcloth and ashes. You don't see many prayer meetings like this today. And then there's perfect plainness. Daniel was candid and straightforward in his confession. He got right down to business. When this preacher in the Scotch prayer meeting, why, he got up and started one of these long-winded prayers. And the dear little Scottish lady pulled his coattail, and she says, Parson, call him Father and ask him for something. We need more plainness in prayer. And then we have the fourth thing is powerful petition. This man got an answer to his prayer. And then the fifth, it's personal and private. Daniel did not call a public prayer meeting. Now, there are a great many people who want to call a public prayer meeting 
who ought to spend more time in private prayer. And then, let me say the last thing is plenary penetration. And I mean by that full penetration. It's the only force that has penetrated successfully outer space. Sir Isaac Newton said he could take a telescope and see the nearest star, but he could put down his telescope and get on his knees, and he could go into the heaven of heavens. This is a marvelous prayer. Now, beginning here with verse 1 and 2, we have the circumstances of the prayer of Daniel. And will you listen to these two verses? The first year of Darius the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Now, first of all, we can more or less pinpoint this prayer in history. We are told it's the first year of Darius. He is of the seed of the Medes. And I think there are two significant questions here. Who was Darius and what was the date? Darius the Mede may be identified as Syaxares, the second of secular history. And we've had him mentioned before in Daniel 5.31. And Darius is more of an official title than it is a name. It's a title such as king or czar or emperor, and rather than an actual name. Now, there's been some disagreement as to the exact date And I'm not sure that that's all important, but Dr. Newell puts the date at 538 B.C. Culver puts it at 536 B.C., but I think either date would fit into the background. But this man conquered Babylon in 538 B.C. Now, as we've already read, it was in the first year of his reign, Daniel, by this time, seeing another great world empire coming into position. He's wondering about the future again, and especially the future of his own people. And he begins to study the Word of God. He goes back and finds out that Jeremiah the prophet had said they'd be in captivity 70 years. Well, in the first year of his reign, that place is... This chapter in the same context is in chapter 8, and that'd be the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. And it means that we've come now to the end of the 70-year period. And it's about time for these people now to be given the opportunity to return to their own land. And Daniel was concerned about his people. I think he'd been shaken by that little horn in chapter 8 who was to arise and who did arise. That was Titus Epiphanes, the Syrian king of the Seleucidae dynasty, who took Jerusalem and who destroyed the temple. I should say profane the temple. And he put up an altar to Zeus there. 
or Jupiter, as the Roman name of him is. And Daniel was concerned about his people because they were to be certainly abused by this little horn that was to appear, and they certainly were. Now, the 70 years that God had predetermined for the captivity of his people is back in Jeremiah 25, 11. Let me read that again. We've been over it before. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And then again in Jeremiah 29, 10, For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you, perform my good word toward you, in causing you to return to this place, that is, back to Jerusalem. Now, you must keep in mind that Daniel had been studying Jeremiah's prophecy about these 70 years. When Gabriel used the expression 70 weeks, we are going to see that he is extending the time of the 70 years, and the 70 weeks will cover the entire time of the nation Israel in this time of testing before the kingdom is established on earth. Now, we'll move on into the prayer before we get to the answer that God gave to him. And I want you to notice this prayer. Just to listen to it reveals how different prayer was in that day that it is to us today. Now, let me read, beginning at verse 3. And I'll read verses 3 and 4. And here you have the conditions of prayer of Daniel. He says, And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful our reverent God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. Now, you see, the Lord Jesus, he fasted, but fasting was never given to the people of God as an observance. It's something you do up and above. The Lord Jesus fasted, and it's mentioned in the early church, that there were many that fasted. And the fact of the matter is, Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven, and he said, "...in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness." Now, I think we should add here that Daniel demonstrated a purposeful persistence in prayer. You remember even Jacob in his prayer said, I'll not let thee go except thou bless me. You see, this prayer of Daniel, it's very personal, and it concerns him and his people. And you find here the use in the prayer of the first personal pronouns, I, we, and our. And that occurs 41 times. Now, you'll recall that when we were looking over chapter 4, we saw there that Nebuchadnezzar used the same pronoun again and again. Well, somebody's going to say, well, what's the difference? For Nebuchadnezzar, it was a mark of pride, a mark of 
being lifted up. What is the contrast? Well, all you have to do is just read this prayer, and the contrast is striking. Here it denotes humility, and it denotes confession and confusion of faces, while in chapter 4 it's used in pride and self-adulation. This is great Babylon that I have built. But Daniel now is down on his face before God, and he recognizes the attributes of God. First, we see that he rests upon his personal relationship to God. Do you notice how he goes here? He calls him my God. He's the one that he's appealing to in a very personal way here. And he's making his confession. He dwells on the greatness of God. And dreadful here means he's worthy of reverence. You don't trifle with God. You don't play church with him. If you do, friends, then that's all you're doing. You're just playing church. God not only makes promises, and that is covenants, but he keeps them. He is immutable, therefore he's faithful. He's a God of mercy. And it was by his mercy that this nation had been preserved. And it's by his mercy that you and I have been brought to this present moment. And it's by his mercy that he saves us. You remember Jeremiah and Lamentations 3.22, it is the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. In other words, God is gracious and God expects us, though, to mean business and he expects to be obeyed. Now, will you notice now Daniel's confession of sin here in verses 5 and 6. We have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants the prophets which spake in thy name to our kings our princes and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. We have sinned. Now here Daniel identifies himself with his people back there in the land when they rebelled against God, which brought the captivity on them. He's specific in his confession. He labels each sin here, each iniquity and wickedness and rebellion and disobedience and their refusal to hear God's prophets. He writes it all down, friends. He doesn't leave any out. And I believe today confession of sin means just simply that. It just doesn't mean to go and say, I've sinned. It means to go and say, I've done this and this and this and this. Uh, I tell you, when your wife sends you to the grocery store, the supermarket to get groceries. She just doesn't say, go down there and get groceries. She always gives me a list. You get this, you get that, you get the other thing, and four or five more things, by the way. And I have to go through that list. And I think confession of sin should be just like that. Spell it out. Somebody says, well, it's a pretty ugly thing. Spell it out to him. He already knows how ugly it is. But we need to confess it. 
and we need to come to him just like that. Now, let me read on here, beginning now with verse 7, and I want you to listen to this. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces, as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and unto all Israel that are near and that are far off. You see, they'd been scattered, but some of them were there. No ten lost tribes, friends, according to the Word of God. That becomes a misnomer, I think, today to talk like that, because here some of them were near and some of them were far off. But the ones far off are not lost, they're just far off. And he knew where they were. And he says, "...through all the countries whither thou hast driven them because of their trespass, that they've trespassed against thee. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God, to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law, even by departing, that they might not obey thy voice. Therefore the curse is poured upon us, and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we've sinned against him, and he hath confirmed his words which he spake against us, and against our judges that judged us by bringing upon us a great evil. For under the whole heaven hath not been done as hath been done upon Jerusalem, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil is come upon us. Yet made we not our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand thy truth. Therefore hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he doeth, for we obeyed not his voice. Now, do you notice in this part of the prayer, and I'm not through with it, but will you notice now up to verse 15, Daniel contrasts God's goodness with Israel's sin. He contrasts his righteousness with their confusion of face, which is their shame. They were scattered because of the trespass against God. They deserved the punishment they had received. And God was righteous in sending them into captivity. God was right. They were wrong. May I say, friend, all of this type of prayer today that goes to God and makes excuses and say, Lord, you know that I'm weak and you know that I was in this circumstance and that circumstance. Actually, when you start that kind of talk, you're blaming it on God. You're saying God made a mistake. May I say it to you? You're saying God may be wrong. He should have taken those things in consideration. He was hard on you. My friend, you and I getting exactly what we deserve. Believe that, will you? We get exactly 
what we deserve. And we need to go to God in confession of our sin. And this idea today of trying to say that God may be wrong in what he's doing. God's not wrong. We are the ones wrong. Now, this is the proper attitude each of us should take as we approach our God in prayer. And God will not utterly forsake these people, and he's not going to utterly forsake us. But he sure is not going to move until you and I get to the place where we can claim the mercy of God and not keep making excuses for ourselves. Now notice verses 15 through 18. And now, O Lord, our God, that has brought thy people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and has gotten thee renowned as at this day. We've sinned. We have done wickedly, O Lord, according to all thy righteousness. I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city, Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. Now, therefore, O our God, hear thy prayer of thy servant and his supplications, and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate. For the Lord's sake, O my God, incline thine ear and hear. Open thine eyes and behold our desolations and the city which is called by thy name. For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousness, but for thy great mercy. Now, he concludes by saying, O Lord, verse 19, O Lord, Hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, hearken and do, defer not for thine own sake, O my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. Now, this is Daniel's petition and plea. He recalls how God had led Israel out of Egypt. He did it because of his righteousness not because of theirs. He found the explanation for their deliverance in himself, not in them. We're told in Exodus 2, 24 and 25, God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. You see, the only thing that appealed to God was their groaning. And God had made a covenant. In other words, God saw their misery, and he remembered his mercy. Daniel asked God to repeat himself by delivering them because of his righteousness. God is righteous, you see, when he stands mercy. That's what Paul said, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. That's in Romans 3.26. Now, this is the climactic plea of Daniel. He asks God to hear and answer because of who he is and what his promise. No good thing rests upon Israel. Daniel doesn't plead because he's Daniel, because Daniel associates himself 
with his people, and he says, we've sinned. Daniel's sin, you see. And this makes this all the more remarkable. God's name is at stake, and Daniel is concerned about that. Now, while Daniel was praying here, why, an answer is going to be sent to him. An answer is on the way. And we'll see next time that the angel Gabriel is coming to bring to him probably the most wonderful prophecy that concerns the nation Israel. But we're going to have to wait till next time to look at that. So until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved. Now, friends, we're back at the 20th verse of the ninth chapter of Daniel. And Daniel says here, "...while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin." Now, I want you to notice that Daniel says, "...my sin." Daniel confesses that he's a sinner. I wasn't quite sure right there whether I should say it very point blank or not, because you can't find anywhere in the Word any great sin that Daniel committed. And the fact of the matter is, I've always made the statement that no one was ever saved by the keeping the Ten Commandments. I've repeated that a great deal even on this program and suggested if anybody knew anybody in the Old Testament that was saved by keeping the Ten Commandments to let me know it, because I hadn't found it. And many years ago, when I was a pastor in downtown Los Angeles, a very sharp UCLA student who attended the church, he came to me one night after the service, and he said, Dr. McGee, you're always saying that nobody in the Old Testament was ever saved by keeping the Ten Commandments and didn't sin. Uh, he said, I can mention one. And I said, who? He said, Daniel. Well, I said, very frankly, the fact of the matter is, you can't find where Daniel sinned, can you? What did he do? We don't have any record of it. But I told this young man, I said, unfortunately, Daniel recorded a prayer. And in that prayer, he tells us that he was confessing my sin. Imagine that. Now, I said, I don't know what it was, but Daniel knew, and God knew. Now, I said, if Daniel did not commit sin, and he said that he committed sin when he didn't commit sin, then he committed sin by saying he committed sin when he didn't commit sin. So, I said, Daniel's a sinner any way you take him. So, Daniel is a sinner. No one ever saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. This man is casting himself and his people upon the mercy of God. And he says here, "...and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God." And that would be Jerusalem. Now, we continue on here. He says, "...yea, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And by the way, I probably ought to stop and say this, because I'm sure that some of you are still turning over in your mind, well, what sin did Daniel commit? Well, may I say that it's none of my business, and apparently none of your business, because it's not recorded. 
He's a sin. He says that. And now he's praying about that holy mountain, which is Jerusalem and the kingdom of God that is to be there. You read that in Isaiah, the second chapter, the first two verses. Now, the man Gabriel is an angel, and he evidently appeared in human form. And the time of his appearance here was at the hour of the evening sacrifice at Jerusalem. And this is Jerusalem's standard time, which is approximately three o'clock in the afternoon. Now, he gives him here this prophecy. Now, I begin reading with verse 22. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. Now, you'll notice Daniel gets an immediate answer to his prayer. And you can tell how long it takes God to answer a prayer here. I heard Dr. Gabeline say once it took him three minutes to read this prayer in Hebrew. And by the time Daniel had finished reading it, the angel Gabriel was there. And that means it took three minutes for him to get to heaven down here. But the interesting thing is, Daniel had his eyes closed and he didn't open them till the prayer was through, till he'd said, Amen. Angel Gabriel may have been standing around on one foot and the other for two minutes waiting for him. So it could be just a minute. Now, Daniel is greatly beloved and in heaven. That's wonderful. And I think, friends, you and I today, if we're in Christ, accepted in the beloved, we're beloved also in heaven because of Christ's sake. Now, will you notice verse 24? Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Now, seventy weeks. This does not mean weeks of seven days any more than it means weeks of seven years or seven other periods of time. The Hebrew word here means a unit of measure. For instance, like the word dozen today. A man may say that, to tell you of a morning, that I had a half a dozen for breakfast this morning. Well, a half a dozen what? It could be eggs, it could be bananas, it could be oysters, it could be most anything, because it's just a unit of measure. Now, weeks here can be either a unit of days or of years, and I think that the context will have to determine how it's to be used. The things that are mentioned here could not have been accomplished in 70 weeks, and we know that they were not accomplished in that period of time. But the 70 years captivity, you see, was the specific penalty for violating 70 sabbatic years, totaling 490 years. And I think what God now is saying to Daniel, Daniel, the 70 years is up. The captivity is over. They'll return. But 
before everything is consummated and the kingdom is brought in, there is yet to be 490 more years that concern your people. And that is the way that, you remember, God had told Jeremiah they were to go into captivity 70 years because for 490 years they had missed in Second Chronicles 36:21 to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years. Now, Daniel was puzzled as to how the end of the 70 years' captivity would fit into that long period of Gentile world dominion. As the vision that he had had in chapters 7 and 8 had clearly indicated... Now, he obviously thought that at the end of the 70 years, his people would be returned to the land, and the promised Messiah would come, and the kingdom that had been promised to David would be established. Now, how could both be true? It seemed to him, I'm sure, that it could not be reconciled, and that it created seemingly contradictory prophecies. Now, the 70 weeks answers two questions. Israel's kingdom will not come immediately, and the 70 weeks must run their course. Now, these 70 weeks fit into the times of the Gentiles, and they run concurrently with them. They're broken up to fit into Gentile times. And when it says that 70 weeks are determined, it actually literally means cutting off. Seventy weeks are to be cut off into periods in this period of Gentile time. That's exactly what he means here. Now, we find out that these 70 weeks concern thy people and thy holy city. Now, there are certain things that are to take place in that 70-week period or 490 years Six things must be accomplished, and they could not have been, of course, accomplished in 490 days. And that's the reason we accept the year period, because it does fit into prophecy. Most of it has been fulfilled. Sixty-nine of those weeks have already passed, and one week is yet to be fulfilled, and it fits very nicely into prophecy. Now, first of all, there are six things to be accomplished. The first thing is to finish the transgression. Now, that refers to the transgression of Israel. The cross provided the redemption for the sin of the nation, but they all did not accept it. Today, the word has gone out to the ends of the earth. There is a redemption for mankind. But in that last week, God says in Zechariah 12:10, I'm going to pour upon the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplications. And he says also in chapter 13 of Zechariah, then that day there'll be a fountain open to the house of David, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Now that hasn't been opened. And they have not turned to that today. All you have to do is to look into that land to know that. Now, the second thing is to make an end of sins. That is, there are 
national sins will come to an end at the second coming of Christ. They're just like any other people or nation. They're going to be sinners as individual and as a nation. They've made many mistakes as a nation. And so have we. And you can't blame them just for that. But God will make an end of it. Now, the third thing, to make reconciliation for iniquity. In other words, God will provide in this period of the 70 weeks... God will provide a redemption, and that's the death and resurrection of Christ. The fourth thing is to bring in everlasting righteousness, and that's the return of Christ at the end of the 490 years to establish the kingdom. And then the fifth, to seal up the vision and prophecy, means that it'll all be fulfilled, and that will vindicate this prophecy as well as all other prophecies. And finally to anoint the most holy. And that has reference to the anointment of the holy of holies in the millennial temple, which Ezekiel talked about, and we saw in the 41st through the 46th chapter. That gives us the beginning. Now, let's continue on. Verse 25, "...know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem under the Messiah the Prince," shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built and the wall even in trouble sometimes. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war desolations of determined, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate even to the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. All right, now, friends, we're ready for your chart. Where are we going to begin with the 490 years? Now, the 20th year of Artaxerxes was the decree given to Nehemiah to rebuild the city. That's 445 B.C. Now, this period is divided into three periods. Forty-nine years, seven weeks, the city would be rebuilt. That brings you to the end of the Old Testament, 397th B.C. The city was rebuilt at that time. Now, from then on, there's to be 434 years, 62 weeks, and that would bring you to the time that the Messiah would be cut off, and then the city would be destroyed. And all of this seems to bring to an end, as it were, if you notice here. The 62 weeks of 434 years brings us to the Messiah. Actually, Sir Robert Anderson, who had been head of the so-called FBI over in England, and he had worked out a plan, even figured it down to the days. But the very interesting thing is that after the 69th week, Messiah would be cut off, and he was crucified and rejected. There was the destruction of Jerusalem, which took place in 70 A.D., and then there is a final week, the 70th week. Now, that week hasn't taken place yet. There was to be a hiatus, a period, after the 69 weeks. And it's during that period 
that God has been calling out a people to his name. This is the time of the Gentiles, the age of grace. And the age of grace was not known to Daniel. He doesn't mention it. Why should he? Then he says the prince that is coming. Now, he will be a Roman prince because it'll be the one that cut off the Messiah. And he's the little horn of Daniel 7. He's the beast of Revelation 13. In other words, after the church is removed from the earth, that will begin the 70th week of Daniel. And that is divided, as we've seen in both Daniel and Revelation, into two periods. The first period, this Antichrist comes to power. And the last period, may I say, is the time of the Great Tribulation. And it ends by the Lord Jesus Christ coming to the earth to establish his kingdom here upon this earth. That makes this one of the most remarkable prophecies. So, friends, in your chart, you have seven weeks, Jerusalem rebuilt, 62 weeks. That brings you to the time Jesus went into Jerusalem in triumphal entry. He was then cut off and crucified. Jerusalem was destroyed. A period goes by. It's already been 1,900 years. And the 70th week of Daniel, the great tribulation, the Lord Jesus called it, is yet to take place. And at the end of that, Christ comes and establishes his kingdom. This is a remarkable prophecy.